So next time you're out in the desert in rural Arizona and you come across this place where you have to jump across a four foot gap over like a 200 foot drop, you know how you do. Um, and you do that, you jump onto the next thing, stop for a second because there actually might be a geocache there. And the geocache is actually called the Leap and it's up on a mountain range in Arizona across this 200 foot drop. So next time you're there, you're like, hey, I'm going to jump across this drop like I always do. Take a look around um, because that's that's what might be there. So take a look around. The geocache is called the Leap. You'll have to look it up. And uh, if you get it, you know, take a picture with it and send it to me. And again, I, I will send you a uh, gift certificate to the food chain of your choice. We're talking above Wendy's, below Red Robin. Um, either that, and I've come up with an option here, or uh, $25 worth of MySpace stock, um, which which I think would be a really useful thing to, for you to have. So again, the leap. So take a look for that. Welcome to Geocaching Scripture. This is Josh. I am back in the blanket fort because why not? It's a great place to be. Geocaching Scripture. Geocaching is that rarefied sport hobby of finding these little treasures like the one on the leap, uh, which put a little treasure hunting back into our sort of over-explored, over-used, over-tired world. It's become a bit of a metaphor for me on how I interact with Scripture. I've been in ministry for 10 years or so, went to seminary, grew up in the church, very much in, soaked in the scripture, in the church, and a lot of these stories became a little over-familiar. But to find again these little treasures of language, cultural situation, history, context, that help bring out the dimension again that's in scripture, kind of like looking for the leap, as if, you know, jumping around on the mountains wasn't exciting enough, now you can find something someone left there. So, again, send me a picture. Let's geocache. Okay, this one, I am not going to lie to you. We are way down in the weeds on this one. Let me just read you the scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 28. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. This is out of Corinthians. Corinthians is one of the most exciting, lively, troubled, dysfunctional kind of letters of Paul. That is a lot of fun to get into when you when you can. I, I wrote a 97-page paper on 1 Corinthians one time, and, you know, that was that was a feat in and of itself. I, I didn't do very well on it or anything, but it was it was a lot of work, and and I only scratched the surface of Corinthians. And, and you have this particularly strange part of it. So we have to go way back on way back into the looking at the whole mountain range here. And then we're going to put on all our gear and go way, way, way high up on the mountain. So, looking at the whole mountain range here, we're going to look at Corinthians. Corinthians, Corinth. Corinth was this uh, port community where you had a bunch of cultures all intermixing with each other. Um, and a bunch of different faiths all intermixing with each other. So, one of the problems that got imported into the early Christian community in Corinth 
was that people were trying to get onto the latest thing and the coolest thing and the inside tract on faith, um, as if if they followed a certain teacher, they were better than someone else. Um, and Paul actually makes fun of them at the opening of Corinthians. He says, you know, you say I am for Apollos, you say I am for Paul, you say I am for Jesus, all these things. Did Paul die for you? Did Apollos die for your sins? Just making fun of their different sloganeering and saying, oh, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that, I'm better than you because I'm this. And Paul brings them back over and over again and says, it's idiotic, first of all. It's not the point. You're not bringing that one-upmanship into this sacred space. You're here because of Christ, and you're all on level ground together with Christ. And so they meet at the table like they do, rich and poor, young and old, um, male and female, all these things that would not have uh, happened in other parts of society. And Paul, and Paul says, this is, this is equality. This is what it looks like. And you don't get to pick an inside track, and you don't get to pick who you're going to follow, who you're going to do this and that and the other. Paul would never say, I want you to follow me. He would say, I want you to follow Christ. I don't want you to be Paulites. I want you to be Christians. And so that's what's on his mind all the time. And what he presses throughout Corinthians is getting out of this fad, clicking mindset and into this uh, community of love together. That love is to be the driving dynamic and putting others before yourself is to be your driving hermeneutic on behavior. It is what determines what it means to be like Christ. So, 1 Corinthians 13. I know, somebody read it at your wedding and, and you cried and you played hair metal while you read it and, and your aunt made you a cross-stitch of it. I'm sorry, it's not about a wedding. It's about love and it's about love in the community. And Paul is dealing with their spiritual gifts and other things, and he says, you know, all those things are great, but they don't do any good if they don't come back in to the community. They don't love others. They don't heal a community together. That relationship is where your holiness is worked out. It's not your own thing. Okay, so how does all this bear on this bizarre conversation in 1 Corinthians 8-10? through 10? And I'm going to try to give you the... The small version of it, but again, put your gear on, come up the mountain with me, because this is—I'm not gonna—I'm not gonna lie to you. It's not—it's not an easy trail. It's not like a slope. It's not like a waltz or a stroll. Stroll—that's the word. Anyway, okay. So, First Corinthians eight through ten talks about meat offered to idols, and that is the weirdest thing. Um, we don't have that going on in our culture, but it was a very, very common thing back then. The issue was that the, um, the Greco-Roman people would offer meat to an idol. They would have a party. That was the way they did worship, was they would have a sacrifice and a party and offer some meat to this idol, and they would burn it, and the, the aroma would appease the, the deity, and then they would eat the rest of the meat. But they always had a bunch of surplus left over, so what it developed was almost like a a side hustle of the of the priests of the Greco-Roman temple who would take this meat and sell it in the marketplace. And there was tons of it. And it was a way to get, it was a way to feed your family. The Jewish people, in efforts to, to put as much space between them and idolatry as they could, would not eat meat served to idols. Absolutely not. They would not eat it. They knew that if it was in this particular place in the temple that it had been served to idols and they wouldn't have any part of it. Paul draws a distinction, comes in and says, okay, 
Whether or not it's offered to idols doesn't really matter anymore. It's what he called adiaphora. It's, it is uh, things of no consequence. So whether or not it's offered to idols doesn't matter. What matters is that you don't offer yourself to an idol. So you don't take part in these sacred meals in the temple anymore in front of these gods and participate in that worship. But once the meat comes out of there, it's just ground beef. It's just steak. It's just lamb, whatever it was cold cuts, you know, that kind of thing. And it's it's not, and it's what goes, what comes out of a man defiles him, not what goes into a man defiles him. It's all along that hermeneutic of changing around what it means to be a Christian as opposed to what it means to be involved in a ritualistic relationship with God. And so that became this whole long discussion. And you have these two Greek words at work here in this. They're very interesting. Um, the Greek word for, or the Greek word that the Jews used for meat offered to idols was adalathua, adalathuta, adalathuta. Adalathuta has the word what? The word idol in it. But when they went to get their meat, they they wouldn't they wouldn't say to the Greco-Roman grocer they wouldn't say, is this adalathuta? Is this meat offered to idols? Because why? The Greco-Roman grocer didn't understand that. He didn't think of his his deities as idols. They were what he worshipped. He didn't think of them as idols. So he didn't call them that. He called them by a different name. They were called hierothuta. Hierothuta is that other word that was used by the Greco-Roman side to talk about this same meat. So two, one object, two different ways of describing it. You see how that works. So for the Jewish person, this is meat offered to idols. For a uh, Greco-Roman person, this is sacred meat that was used in these rituals. And it's all very interesting. And what, what it comes to bear on in, in this particular geocache, again, come with me. I know we're, we're approaching the summit here. 1 Corinthians 10.28 But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. This has been offered in sacrifice. And Paul uses the word hierothuta. He does not use the word adalathuta. He uses the word hierothuta, which means the Greco-Roman person is the one asking or telling you that it has been offered to idols. They are using their word to describe this meat. This whole section is about not causing people to stumble. And what Paul means, he's differentiating between offending someone and causing someone to sin. He says, you are Christians. You do not participate in these idol worship things anymore. You don't do this anymore. But the meat is just meat. But if somebody is just out of the Greco-Roman community, fresh into becoming a Christian, and they... It puts them in a bad place psychologically. It puts them in a bad place emotionally. Draws them back to thinking about these idols and thinking about this old way of life. Then don't eat that meat. And Paul says, I'll just be a vegetarian. If it causes somebody to sin, I'm not into it. I'm not interested at all. And that is why he uses the word here. And that's the geocache is that difference, that very subtle difference of wording where he says, do not bring them into sin. For the other people, 
the Jewish believers who come in and say, I'm not going to eat that, it's been offered to idols, Paul doesn't really say, he says, he says, that's, that's an old way of doing things. We're getting away from that. We don't do that anymore. So don't worry about it. Meat is meat. However, if you have a Greco-Roman brother who comes to you and says, this has been offered to idols, this is hierothuta, then you say, okay, hey, let's not put your mind in a bad place or your spirit in a bad place. We don't have to eat at all. Anything to keep that relationship, anything to put that other person ahead of yourself, because love is the hermeneutic. Love is what drives your thoughts, your actions now. It is not trying to be more right than someone else or better than someone else or follow some rituals so you appease some God. It is love between brothers and sisters. Let me, let me pull this into our own life. Think about this. I mean, the obvious and easy example is alcohol. I like a good scotch. I like a good dark brew. But if someone comes to my house who has just, just got sober, who is just out of alcoholism, and they're going to be there, I'm going to put it all away. I won't drink anything. I'll drink water. What matters is them and their spiritual health, not my freedom. I will not throw my freedom in their face because of that. Even another example, a little more offbeat, even more silly, but you like heavy, heavy metal headbanger music. I love it. Absolutely love it. And I rock out to it because I'm a copywriter. And for some reason, that really helps me concentrate. But if I was around someone who just came out of a lifestyle in which that music was associated with drug use, was associated with sexual license, all sorts of other things, guess what? I don't listen to it anymore. They want to ride in my car? We play other music. Because they are, their spiritual health is what I put first. My love for them is the hermeneutic of my behavior. And that's Paul's point throughout 1 Corinthians. One of the major issues he's dealing with, and I've talked about it in geocaching before, is the gift of tongues. In their society at the time, many of the pagan cults around spoke in tongues, and you were considered great and holy and whatever if you could speak in tongues. And Paul says, Nonsense. The point of the gift is to edify the body, not to edify you. Right? Not to edify you. It is to edify the body and hold them up and work within that hermeneutic of love. Hermeneutic being the criteria by which you interpret something. And that is how you see the difference. And that is what dictates who you are now and what you do now. Ask me how I feel about it. Anyway. Good to be in the blanket for it. It's hot in here. Pax Humana. Cheers.